So you can tell from uh, some of the lyrics of the songs that we sang that today's about money, money and investment. Now my question to you to start is, how do you know if you make a wise investment? How do you define a good investment? The best investments are always those that give the greatest return. So if you deposit $1 and render back $5, that's a great investment. That's actually almost unheard of. Uh, if you do $1 and you get 10 back, that's even better. Uh, so the more that you return on your investment, the greater the investment is. So just, just think for a moment. When was your greatest investment? What was the greatest rate of return in your life? I'm talking monetarily. I mean, I know you could always make the spiritual connection. We'll get there. But just, just with dollars and cents. My greatest investment in, involved, I guess you could use time, because my example is time, it involved uh, two hours of work. Uh, when I wanted to get married, I had no money for a ring. I don't think I've even told this story to Ange yet, so this is a, a big moment for us. I, I had no money for a ring. I was in school, and uh, I went to my dad, and I said, Dad, I, I would like to propose to Ange, but I don't have enough money for a ring. I don't know exactly what I was hoping for. Maybe I was hoping for a loan or for a gift from him. And he said, well, you know what? I have this, this pile of copper cords that has just been cluttering up the basement for, for months and years. And I would really like to get rid of it. If you strip the outer casing off of the cords, you can take the copper in and get the money back. So it took me about two hours to strip everything. I took it into to London, gave them the copper, and I was surprised. I didn't get hundreds of dollars back. I got thousands of dollars of back in one's morning's work. And that paid for the ring. Maybe then some. That was my wisest monetary investment because it was the greatest rate of return. If time is money, the return that I got on that was not just thousands of dollars, but a proposal and a wife. And so the, uh, the investment was tremendous. Today, we're going to consider the investment that gives us the greatest rate of return. And obviously what that is, is when we invest in heavenly things. When you invest your life in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you get the greatest return on that investment. Now, I just want to pause for a moment. We're very quick to think, well, okay, let's take the leap from monetary, physical investments. And now we're talking about spiritual. And we think, well, there's some spiritual return. But what I want us to think about today is return is spiritual, but what does that mean? I would argue that the return on our investment of faith is super physical. It's not just a right standing before God as wonderful and glorious as that is. And it is. It's not just forgiveness for past sins, although it is that. That, that would be enough, would it not be? It's not just escape from past shame, though it is that. These are all kind of ambiguous, things that we might call spiritual things. You know that your faith is literally food. Food, we eat food so that our bodies can physically keep on working. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the rate of return on that investment one day will be physical, glorious resurrection from the dead. And then, on top of that, if that wasn't enough, God, God is going to take this universe that we're living in now, and he's going to say, this universe, as good as it is, as glorious as it is, you go back before the fall and it was good, very good, it's under a curse. And God says, what I'm going to do is I'm going to remove the curse. And that's why in Romans 8, we hear that this universe itself is groaning with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That is us at the moment of our, our resurrection from the dead. God is going to destroy and then resurrect in glory this physical universe. And then guess what he's going to do? He's going to say, I want you to have it. And your net worth, every one of us, will be immeasurable. And I'm not talking about ambiguous, uh, non-physical things. I'm saying our net worth in, in earth and sky will be immeasurable. 
as he seats us with Christ over all that he has created for every age to come. Now, you, you want to just talk dollars and cents. You want to talk about a wise investment. And I'm not saying, well, you have business investments now and you have spiritual investments later. I'm saying the best possible business investment that we can make is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it will make the richest man or woman in the world today seem like a pauper by comparison. And all God asks us for is that we are patient, that we collect interest in his heavenly bank until the time when he says it's now is the time when I will pay out the investment that you have made. So the, the goal of today's sermon is not to say, well, you have physical investments now and you have eternal investments later. I want us, I want us to see them as one and the same thing. Invest in the kingdom of God because there's no greater tangible, physical, monetary investment that you will ever make. Not just resurrection from the dead, but the universe in glory with us. Last week, we looked at the 13th instruction to the church. And I have to go back there because today's message really stands on top of it. So just just to sort of uh, get us going, and then we'll pray, and then we'll take a look at today's sermon text. Last week, we looked at the 13th instruction, and that instruction was, beware of conceited, ignorant, and quarrelsome people in the church. If you just open your Bibles to 1 Timothy, chapter 6, and I want to remind you of verse 5. At the end of this instruction, Paul gave us three characteristics of at-risk people that, and these characteristics will, will cause, when acted upon, the church becomes sin-sick. Just take a look at them. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 5. The at-risk people are those who are, right at the very end, are depraved in mind, deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Imagining that godliness is a means of of gain. Today we're going to take a look at what does that mean? Uh, is not godliness great gain? We're going to find out today godliness with contentment is great gain. Would you just stand and we'll read this morning's uh, preaching text and then we'll pray. 1 Timothy chapter 6. We're going to read verses 6 through 10 and then 17 through 19. But godliness... With contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of it. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now drop down to verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they may take hold of that which is truly called life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you give us perspective on riches, that we are not to pierce ourselves with many pangs in this age, trying to store up for ourselves riches when at the end of our lives we cannot take them with us. We know that you have promised us eternal riches. Help us, Lord, to keep the right perspective, to set our hope on you who richly provides for us everything that we need in this life and in the age to come, immeasurable riches along with resurrection 
and forgiveness and glory. Lord, help us to not be so nearsighted that we miss the best investment that we could make. And I pray especially for, for each of us here because we are rich. Each of us, by worldly standards, in all the ages, we're rich. And I confess, for my part, and I confess on behalf of all of us, that we may not be the best stewards of the riches that you've entrusted to us. God, I pray for your Holy Spirit to help us, move among us, change our hearts, change our behaviors, change our investments, that we may not miss out in all the good gifts that you long to give to us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Please be seated. I've already introduced sort of the end of, of last week's preaching text, and, and the reason I did that was because we have to see that last week's preaching text, if, it, if Paul just left it there, it might lead us to believe that we ought not to seek after gain. And that, that's what today's preaching text is all about. Paul, Paul, actually, I could imagine him, and I feel like I've come to know Paul pretty well, having, having read his letters uh, for so long. And I, and I can imagine Paul, as he does at several points in his different letters, he, he writes something, and, and you can almost see, and I think he probably dictated, but he says, just hold on for a minute. And he reflects on it, and he says, yeah, that's good. But unless I qualify it, people might misunderstand what I, what I meant. And, and that's what verses 6 through 10 is all about. He says, I don't want you for a moment to think that there's no, no gain in godliness or that you should not even aspire toward gain, which he gets to in verses 17 through 19. We ought to seek gain. We ought to seek after godliness. And so, so today what we're going to see is, well, how do you balance that we shouldn't imagine that godliness is gained by, but at the same time, seek gain and seek godliness. That's what we're going to look at. So in order to understand today's instruction, we need to see the structure for the rest of the letter of 1 Timothy. And, and what we're going to see here is there's the main line. This is what Paul, you might consider Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit. This was on the forefront of his mind. This is what he really wanted us to know. And, and that includes last week's preaching text, beware of conceited, ignorant and gain our quarrelsome people. That was last week. Don't, uh, be careful for people who, who uh, are, are seeking after a different doctrine, the people who cause quarreling and strife in the church, the people who are greedy for gain. Be careful of those people. And, and then if we were to just skip down to verse 11 through 16, he continues the main line of his thought. But notice we've cut out verses 6 through 10, which we're going to look at today. And just take a look for, for a moment at verse 11. In verse 11, he picks up, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Well, what things? He's not really talking about the things that we're going to discuss today in verses 6 through 10. He's talking about the things that he addressed in verses 3 to 5, which we addressed last week. That's the main line of his thought. He said, be careful of people who teach a different doctrine. Be, beware of people who are against the, the sound words of the, our Lord Jesus Christ. Be careful of, of people uh, who are not really concerned with true godliness. They're, they're quarrelsome people. They're arrogant people. They're conceited people. They're gain-seeking people. And then verse 11, as for you, man of God, flee these things. Don't be like those people. And then he gives us a list of positive things that the man of God ought to pursue in contrast to the people that we discussed last week. And then the main line continues in verse 20. O Timothy, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. That, that is right in line with, with verses 3 to 5, verses 11 through 16, right? Don't pursue false teaching, pursue the truth. Which leaves us then this parenthetical thinking. Paul, Paul wants to give us that main line, but to the side, he's like, I just, I feel compelled by the Holy Spirit in me to just qualify this whole issue of imagining that godliness is a means of gain. And so the preaching text this morning that we're going to look at, deal with that. It's an aside. It doesn't follow along. So verses 6 through 10 launch from that 
godliness is a means of gain. He says, I want you to understand what I mean by that. And then in verses 17 through 19, he picks up on the idea of riches and he gives us an instruction. Because if you notice, and we'll see this, in verses 6 through 10, it makes us look as though rich people uh, are condemned and can't go to heaven, can't be saved. In verses 17 to 19, he says, look, I'm not saying that either. But for those who are rich in this present age, there's certain things that you need to know. There's certain ways in which you need to live. And so Paul's being very careful to, to, to balance the things that he's saying. Let's take a look at it in order. Today we're going to start with, with verses 6 through 10. That, that parenthetical aside where he says, look, there are people who imagine that godliness is a means of gain. But I, and this is what verses 6 through 10 is all about. But I don't for a moment want you to think that we should not pursue gain or that we should not pursue godliness. And these verses create the context for us to understand verses 17 through 19. So verses 6 through 10 can be divided into two parts. The first half addresses the gain of godliness. And the second half addresses the ruin of riches or the potential ruin of riches. Let's take a look at them in order. Take a look at verses 6 through 8. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Paul says, beware of people who think that godliness is great gain. And then he says, but hold on a minute, as I've already said about three times. There is great gain in godliness. And the way that you gain with godliness is that you bring with that no extra desires for material riches. If your godliness is a means to some material benefit, that is, if you say to yourself, for whatever reason, I think that we want to be careful how limited we are with this. We want to look at it broadly because there's many different ways this could be lived out. But, but if a person says, aha, there is something for me to be gained from the church if I go through the motions of their religion. This could, this could come in a number of ways. Let me just give you two examples. A teacher, a teacher who, who says, I can receive material benefit from the church if I devote myself to preaching and teaching. And in order to do that, I need to sort of pretend I know what I'm talking about, and I need to make a great show of my godliness, or else I won't be asked to teach. And, and believe it or not, this happens. There are, there are unsaved men who pastor their whole lives, and deep down they know they're not saved. But they've invested all of their training years at seminary, and they come into a church context, and, and they don't know what else to do with their life. And so they go through the motions of godliness, teaching, and teaching false doctrine, because that's their only option, or so they think. Or in the extreme sense, you have prosperity gospel teachers, right, who actually preach, you know, call, uh, call in, and I'll heal you, and then you can just send me your money, you know. So, so there are ways in which teachers can try and derive material benefit from the people they're teaching. It could be subtle in the case of an unsaved pastor. It could be uh, very gross and indecent in the case of prosperity teachers. But it also could be the needy person. Because I, I don't know where to go, but I know that the church is generous. So I'll go through the motions of their religion, and the people in the church will provide for me. That also is a problem. It's a problem person. They're not, they're not rich. They're needy. And they'll go through the motions of godliness. They'll, go, they'll, they'll pretend to be a Christian in order to receive the generosity of the church. Paul says that's not what we're looking for here. The gain of godliness is godliness itself. Be content with what you have, whether it's a lot or a little. If all you have is food and clothing, be content with that. 
and now find the gain which is godliness. Do you see the difference? On the one hand, godliness is a means to some other gain. It's a, it's a means to some material benefit. It, it, but what Paul is saying, godliness is not a means to an end. Godliness is the end itself. Godliness is the gain. So, so beware of people who treat godliness as a means to some greater gain. But don't for a moment think that I'm anti-godliness. Godliness itself is great gain. And he says, look, we brought nothing into the world. We can't take anything out of the world. Therefore, whatever we have between our birth and our death is a bonus. How many of us think like that? I came in with nothing. No clothes, even. I'll leave... I might be clothed, but I'll take nothing that I store up on this earth. Therefore, whether I have a lot or a little, I have more than I started with, and I have more than I'll have at the end. That's radical thinking. And let me just confess to you, I'm not there yet. Are you? To be content with food and clothing? If we could all be content with food and clothing, think of what a force we could be together in this city. Think about all the time that, that we all put toward accumulating more stuff. And then think about all of the time that we give to the stuff that we've accumulated. What if instead of that we would be content with less and having less we would need to work less in the pursuit of these material gains, and we would have more time for one another. We would have more time for the building up of the church. We would have more time for bearing witness out in the world. We'd have more time to serve our unsaved neighbors. We'd have more time to, say, uh, to serve our unsaved family. We'd have more time to be content with godliness. How many people can't really commit to the church Because they're busy gaining something for themselves. That has nothing to do with Christ's kingdom. I remember when I said, I'm not here yet. Are you? By contrast, Paul says then, material discontent people injure themselves in the pursuit of wealth. Take a look at the second half of this parenthetical aside about riches. Verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You know, what Paul says here is the worst part. There's many bad things. It's the root of all kinds of evil, the love of money, the pursuit of wealth. But the worst of it, if you really want to know, is that when there, there's a fork in the road in, in our lives, and this life is to greater material blessings and prosperity, and this road leads to greater faithfulness and commitment to Christ and his church, when we stand at the fork in that road, the greatest tragedy is when we go down the road of greater riches. Thinking all the while, we'll take Christ with us. We'll take him down that road with us. After all, he has promised to love us and to never forsake us forever and ever. And his grace is rich and wide and deep. And, and yes, and yes, and yes. And we'll get to that in verses 17 to 19. But at this point, that's not Paul's preoccupation. At this point, Paul is saying the greatest tragedy is that some people, for the love of money, have wandered away from the faith. They've chosen to go to the left instead of the right at the fork of the road. 
they've chosen their, their uh, material benefit now rather than their material benefit later. Now, notice how I said that. I didn't say they've chosen riches over Christ. I choose material riches. That's fine. In fact, Christ asks us to store up for yourself riches in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. Christ is not anti-riches. He wants to lavish us, as I said at the very beginning, with a new heavens and a new earth where we will have more material riches than the richest men and women in this life. The problem is not uh, choose riches or Christ. It's choose riches at the expense of Christ. Choose riches now instead of riches later. If you choose Christ, you're making the better financial material investment. There's a slightly different way of thinking about it. Choose Christ for Christ's sake. But with Christ comes the new heavens and the new earth. With Christ comes resurrection from the dead. With Christ comes the glory of God. With Christ comes an invitation to reign with him in power forever and ever over every age to come. With Christ comes the inheritance that God the Father has given to his son. And what kind of riches do you think God the Father has lavished on his son? But being short-sighted, not having faith or confidence that what I've just told you is true, uh, I'll choose riches now. And you know what a tragedy it is? That you're choosing that two-story, three-bathroom, unfinished basement house over the palace of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What a what a stupid trade. Right? And we all do it in one way or another. The tragedy is short-sightedness. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, I just want to say, I, I've hit the, heart, the nail pretty hard about the riches coming to us. And, and I know someone might say, well, that is not very pious. That's not very spiritual. Uh, you shouldn't be encouraging people to indulge their desires for material wealth from the pulpit. It, Christ should be enough. Of course. Of course Christ is enough. If, if all we received by faith in Christ is just one minute in the presence of our glorious Savior, it would be more than worth it. So I'm not, I'm not saying that. I, but I am just reminding us of the biblical promises that, that are given to us. Like, read Ephesians 1. And God desires for us to desire the good gifts that he longs to lavish upon us. He, he wants us to want it. And, and God is not asking us to, be, to choose Christ and in, in, in an eternal life of misery. He's not saying, I want you to be miserable. And I was just listening to a sermon by John Piper where he talks about uh, Christian hedonism. And he says, you know, there will be those who say, and, and they'll try and get you into a corner, and, and they'll say to you, uh, would you willingly be damned if it brought more glory to God. And the reason that's a trap is because if you say yes, what it means is you don't believe that God wants us to be happy and to, to be filled with joy. And if we say no, it means that we actually aren't that interested in the glory of God. But praise be to God that he doesn't ask us to choose between the two. In fact, when you seek the glory of God, it's God's good pleasure to give you everything that he has. And how much do you think God has? 
I mean, we see this played out in the relationship between the Father and the Son, right? Jesus Christ, his number one motivation in life was to bring glory to the Father. He was willing to die for it. And because of that, if you keep reading in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. And if it's true of our brother Jesus, it's true of us. That's Ephesians 1. We are united with Christ. When we seek the glory of God with every fiber of our being, we can rest assured that it is in our best interest. That it's his desire, it's, it's God's longing to exalt us with Christ. Not to be equal to Christ, but to be united with Christ. And so God never asks us to choose between our own best interests and his glory because our best interest is God's glory. So don't, don't get yourself in a theological pretzel thinking that I can't want what's good for myself. Uh, the best decision that you've ever made for yourself is choosing Christ. That is a self-interested decision. And it comes with resurrection and glory and riches and power in Christ. So we don't have to choose between the two. And then again, to just borrow from John Piper, because I took that from him. He says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And when we are most satisfied in God... God gives us everything that he has to give. It's amazing. And that's how, that's how the inner workings of the Trinity operate. The Son eternally exists to glorify the Father, and the Father eternally glorifies the Son. It's a two-way street. This is, this is the, the immeasurable riches of the gospel. Now, gut check time, if, if not already, but let's just return to these. How many of us then are, are content with food and clothing? How many of us, when faced with the choice, choose riches over faith? Now, this is tricky. How do you evaluate that how, right now? What's going on in your mind? How do you decide if you've choose, chosen riches over faith? I think there's the blatant one, right? There's, it's, it's obvious when someone says, I'm, I'm not going to be a Christian because, because I want to indulge myself now. That's obvious. But you know that we can pierce ourselves with many pangs by choosing riches over faith without losing our salvation? Because God is rich in, in mercy and in grace. So, so we, we can, so to speak, skid into heaven with only the foundation of Christ's finished work. Having built nothing upon it of any lasting value. That is possible. And so we can pierce ourselves with many pangs by, by choosing uh, riches instead of Christ. And all the while we take Christ with us down the road of riches. We take Jesus with us down the road of ruin knowing that at the end he'll save us. And because he is faithful to his promises, he will. Uh, but, but so, so not talking about choosing riches over salvation, but how many of us choose riches over faithfulness? How many of us, when, when we're making our budget, when we're deciding on the use of our time, Squeeze Jesus in. Squeeze the church in. Tack the church on to the end. Ah, uh, well, you know, I've got all of this money that's going to all of these places, and well, you know, the tithe is an Old Testament concept, so I, I just have this little sliver left of money. I'll give it to the church. Or time. I'm so busy at work. I'm so busy with my extracurricular events, I'm so busy with my hobbies, I'm so busy taking care of the stuff that I've purchased, I'm so busy playing with the stuff I've purchased, that, you know, 
if I can make it to church, I will. But, but the Sabbath is an old covenant concept, so I don't have to be there on Sunday. Now, if that's what you took away from our preaching in the summer, then you missed the point. How much, how much of the time do we squeeze in one another? Because we're too busy nesting. I'm not there yet. I, I am not giving enough of myself to Christ. Anyone? Paul says that the root, uh, so the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. He doesn't say it's the root of all evil. One can be material, materially rich and devoted to the faith, to Christ, to the church, to the family. So now we sort of flip. This is, this is what Paul is doing. This is why verses 17 to 19 are in the letter. Uh, so verses 6 through 10 is trying to qualify, what do you mean that, these people imagine that godliness is a means of gain. Isn't godliness gain? Yes. That's what 6 through 10 is about. But understand it properly. Godliness is a mean, is the end. It is the gain. It's not a means to gain. And now, as I have presented to you, there's really no room to say that you can be rich. Right? If, if verses 17 to 19 are there, our application is a whole lot different. So before he ends the letter... I, again, I can imagine Paul sort of sitting there like, yeah, that's, that's right, and that's true. Oh, God, help me pray. He's praying. You know, that's true, too. But if I just leave 6 to 10, and he didn't have the verse numbers, but if I just leave that hanging like that, people will think that they can't have more than food and clothing. And I don't want to leave the church in that place. So now we're going to sort of qualify what we've preached so far. Let's take a read of it in verses 17 to 19. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. And here we get the 14th instruction to the church. And everything that we've said to this point is just background. It's just, it's just context for understanding this 14th instruction, which is this. Set your hopes on God and not on riches. Another way of saying that is make a material investment for eternity, not for this life. Your best life is not now unless you're not saved. If you're not saved... You better squeeze as much pleasure out of this life as you can because this is your best life. But if you're saved, if you have hope in resurrection from the dead, if you're going to reign with Christ forever and ever, this is not your best life. Be content with food and clothing. He'll, he will clothe you in royal robes forever and ever. So with that in mind, set your hopes on God. Not riches. What's the problem with riches? The main problem, and we've alluded to this already, the main problem with riches is that we can feel secure in our self-provision. The more you have, the less you feel you need. I mean, I know that there's this cyclical, parasitic problem with riches that the more money you have, the more money you feel you need. But the more money you have, the less you feel you need God. You don't need God. You don't need God to figure out where you're going to get the food to put on your table next week. Most of us are in that position, right? Uh, we don't need God to answer the question, what am I going to wear this winter? It's going to be a cold winter. We don't need God to ask, how are we going to heat our homes? 
The more we have, the less dependent we become on God, at least so we think, which is not actually true. It's a lie that we buy into because all of that could be removed. Do you realize that? Every riches that you, that you and I have could be removed from us in an instant. And, and I don't need to go through all the myriads of ways that what we have can be taken away from us. It can all be taken away from us. But you know who will never leave us nor forsake us? God. And do you know what God has promised us? He will richly provide for all our needs. Not all our wants, but all our needs. So even in retirement planning, where is your most secure investment in this life? Do you know that all the money you've dropped into your retirement savings could evaporate? There could be a global crisis and it could all be gone. Does that mean we don't plan? And does that mean that we're not wise with our money? Does it mean that we're not good stewards? Of course not. Of course not. But where are you setting your hopes? We do our best with what we have, but where ultimately, when, when the rubber meets the road, where is your confidence that you'll have something to eat when you're 82? Is it because you've been putting away for retirement? Or is it because you know that God will feed you? So if we have a steady income, if we have luxurious spending power, if we have a well-structured retirement plan, we can forget about God. We can forget about our dependency. God says that, or Paul says that God is more reliable than any of these things. What happens if we lose our employment? What happens if we lose our health? What happens if, we if our bank accounts run dry? What happens if our assets are frozen or liquidated or stolen? What if there's a global economic crisis? What if the government changes policies and takes instead of gives? You know, whatever. But we have a God who cares about our eternal well-being and also our temporal well-being. Therefore, if we actually put our trust in God... And here's the implication. If we actually put our trust in God and not in our riches, then we can afford to spend our material wealth on the kingdom of God. We can give sacrificially, not, not without wisdom, not without good stewardship, not without careful planning. But every one of us probably could afford to be more generous than we are. Paul then gives four exhortations to the rich. He says it's not wrong to be rich, but if you are rich in this present world, verses 6 through 10, be careful that you don't pierce yourself with many pangs, either denying Christ outright or investing your life in the wrong places so at the end of the age you have very little to show for your salvation. Rather, and we're going to see here in verse 18, Paul gives us four instructions to the rich in this age. And let me just go out on a limb and say this would include all of us or most of us. If not most of us, all, if not all of us, then most of us. We are rich in this present age. We have much more than food and clothing. So what is the instruction to us? What is the expectation that God has on us? It's in verse 18. They, that is the rich in this present age, are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. We are to do good. Now, what, what, what does Paul have in mind there? Well, contextually, to do good with our riches. We should be thinking when we're doing our weekly and monthly budgets, how can we use the money that we have to do good? Then he says, Secondly, be rich in good works. And I think the implication, if the first one, doing good, is with our bank accounts, the second one is with our time. 
because we all know that time is money. So every day and every season of life, we've got a choice to make. We can either invest time in making more money, or we can be rich in good works, which costs us time. And if it costs us time, it costs us money. So the first one is the money that you have. Do good with the money you have. The second one is do good with the time you have and thus make less money. Third, be generous, which is, I mean, these are kind of redundant, right? The generosity, though, speaks to the, to the heart behind the giving. God loves a joyful giver. Be naturally bent toward generosity. Desire generosity. Be generous. Intentionally give your money away and be glad about it. Rather than buying another uh, item for your wardrobe... Rather than buying another item for your hobbies or your personal pleasures, take money that you might put toward a pair of pants or a shirt or, or a DVD or a motorbike or whatever and find a need and derive pleasure, the same or greater pleasure that you would have going to the shopping mall and buying something for yourself, derive that pleasure or more in giving that money to someone else. And fourth, be ready to share. I think the context here within the letter is within the body of Christ. There's going to be inequilibriums as far as what we all have. We all have more than enough, so we shouldn't grumble too much. But in the church, we should be ready to share. Taking what is the inequilibrium and not making it equal, but less obvious. A few weeks ago, Scott came up here as the treasurer and he said, we've got a $17,000 deficit. I believe that was the number. So that was the money that we've spent more than the money we've received. And our budget is even greater, but the deficit of spending is about 17000 I believe. So I just quickly did the math. If every family at South Shore gave $40 extra for uh, every week, within 15 weeks, we've made up that deficit. Is that doable? We won't make this financial year, but... But could we all give $40 more a week? Now, now let me just start here. And I have no idea what anyone gives. I, I, have, I am so far away from the money that I have no concept. So don't read into this too much. Um, but I just want to ask the question, like, are we giving 10% of our income to the church? Now, I realize that's an old covenant statute. So in the new covenant, there's no absolute requirement for, you know, to be in right standing with God, you have to give 10%. Uh, but let me just, it just doesn't make sense to me that new covenant people would be less generous with their money than old covenant people. So it's not required of you to give 10%, but I guess why wouldn't you? And so I... I wonder if we would have a $17,000 deficit if everyone was giving 10% of their income. I, I don't know because I don't know what anyone's giving. But you know what, if you're giving 10%. And it, so maybe the first goal is to work your budget so that you are giving 10%. And maybe you can't do that overnight, but in time. And if you're already giving 10%, can you give $40 more a week for 15 weeks? If we do that, we will have more money than we, we need, we'll make up the deficit, and we will have fulfilled this instruction. This is very practical. By doing these four things, right, doing good, being rich in good works, by being generous and ready to share, the rich in this age are wisely investing their wealth in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy. And that's exactly the point he makes in verse 19. Take a look at it. If we do these things, thus, the rich in this present age will be storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so they make 
take hold of that which is truly life. And what is the future? Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. And this takes me back to my first point, and we'll end with this. We could be nearsighted or farsighted with this word future. Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation, a good start for their future. I really believe that Paul has in mind here not temporal future, not not this side of resurrection, but the more we invest in heaven, the more we invest in the kingdom of God, the greater our start will be when we are raised from the dead. We'll be storing up for ourselves a good foundation for the eternal future. That moment when God is going to unload the coffers of heaven onto us. I can't help but wonder, if we're storing up riches in heaven, that there's some connection between the investment we make before death and the return we get after our resurrection. Having said that, we have a generous father, and um, it's, it's inconceivable. You, you drop a penny in before you die, and you can't even count the riches coming back to you after you're raised from the dead. Nevertheless... Let us store up riches for that day. The fourth instruction for the church is that we are to set our hope on God, not on riches. This is an instruction that we must fight to implement every day of our lives. As I said, I'm not here yet. It's something that God is really working in my life and in our life on how we steward the resources that he's given to us. There's much room for us to grow. I'm not, I'm not here as one who's, who's arrived. I, I can't point to myself as a good steward of the money that God has entrusted to me. But I see what his word says. And I want to align myself with that. And I, want, I want us, I call on us to align ourselves with the heartbeat of God with our riches. God, I, I pray that you would help us. We are so comfortable that we can't even conceive of the level of contentment that you call us to, to be content with food and clothing. But we want to get there. And I pray that you would move in each of our, our lives, each of our hearts, I pray that husbands and wives would sit down with their weekly and monthly budgets and make small changes. That when we go to buy things, that we would think about this instruction and we would, we would calculate where can we make the better investment? Where can we derive the greater joy? Lord, I pray that you would help us as a church to make back the deficit that we've accumulated over the last year. I pray that together you would help us to give a little more, that we would break even and then some so that we can invest more and more in your kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would help us to continue and perhaps to be even more wise with the way we spend the money that is gathered. We pray these things in Jesus' name.